angiopathic stress generally can be remediated in one or two or, or three visits. And so in, in terms of investment of resource into healthcare, I think it's probably one of the most efficient things that we can do to ourselves. Hi there, I'm Graham Gardner, and you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 12 from the British Society of Dowsers. Our subject today is geopathic stress. There's a lot of talk about this these days, and we've touched on it in uh, earlier episodes, and you'll find lots of information on the internet about it. Now, there can be many different factors involved in geopathic stress, and uh, indeed what we call geopathic stress, but strictly speaking, it is the result of inappropriate placement of a dwelling over a region of unhealthy earth energy, and the depleting effect this has on the human immune system if you're spending a long period of time over that energy. Now, the idea isn't new. It's been around since at least the 1920s, when it was called noxious earth radiation. There's a much greater awareness of this problem in Europe, and much of the research on the subject has been done there. Uh, for example, in the 1920s, a German engineer and dowser, Baron von Pohl, found that all cases of cancer in several towns that he surveyed were situated over zones of detrimental energy that he'd identified through dowsing. And in the 1970s, uh, his findings were checked using a newly developed instrument called a scintillometer, and it was noticed that there was a small but definite increase in air ionisation over every one of von Paul's lines. Devices like these uh, scintillometers are highly sensitive and also very expensive, and they've been developed to the point where geologists can nowadays use them to detect mineral deposits even from an aircraft. Sensitive magnetometers can also detect changes in the magnetic field over geological fault lines, fissures, uh, other natural cavities underground, and this is exactly the sort of thing that dowsers also find, of course, so it's no surprise that dowsers are often called upon to survey properties and provide advice where geopathic stress is involved. Now, there are many methods for assessing and dealing with geopathic stress, from the simplest move-the-bed option to more advanced uh, earth acupuncture methods. If you remember, we learned in podcast number six how Billy Gon uses standing stones to earth the detrimental energies from underground water veins. And, uh, of course, there's also the more feng shui-like space-clearing techniques or those using focused intent or prayer, such as described by Doris Frankish in podcast number 10. The techniques tend to vary depending on the practitioner's own training and background and the particular situation in question, where things might just be a little more complicated than plain old ordinary underground water flows. Coming up, I'll be talking to former BSD president Dr Patrick McManaway about his geomantic house healing work and he'll be telling us about the sorts of things that he finds. But first, let's have a look at some forthcoming BSD events. Well, it's nearly Halloween once again, so we're getting to the end of the dowsing season, but there's still a couple of training courses to come before the end of the year. On the 14th and 15th November 2009, Sarah Doughty Bassett is leading a foundation course at the Harry Edwards Healing Sanctuary, and that's in Shear near Guildford. 
And on the 21st of November, Roy Riggs is tutoring a one-day technopathic stress workshop at Presbury's Natural Therapy Centre, and that's near Gloucester, although I believe that course is now fully booked, so uh, make sure to check if you want to come along. Uh, There's a couple of BSD-approved courses. Vicky Sweetlove is doing an Introduction to Dowsing one-day course on the 15th of November at Piccadilly in London. And the following week, on the 22nd of November, Vicky's running a one-day Introduction to Earth Energies and Spirit of Place workshop, and that's being held in Worship Street in London. More details of all these courses can be found on the main website at britishdowsers.org. And I've just got time to mention the Health Special Interest Group event, which is taking place on Halloween, Saturday the 31st of October, and that's been held in the Village Hall in Compton, near Guildford. And speakers are Mary Hunt, who's talking about epigenetics, why you are the way you are. Our Vice President, Adrian Inkleton Weber, asks, so how healthy are you? And Don Thomas is talking about energy and chakra balancing in humans and animals with dowsing. Hmm, so, sounds interesting. Uh, for more details of that, of course, uh, check the website. And don't forget, you don't need to be a BSD member to attend. And now here's my interview with Dr. Patrick McManaway. Patrick is a full-time geomancer, working with the creation of sacred spaces such as labyrinths and stone circles, and he's also well known for his house healing work, both here in the UK and in the United States. I spent a very pleasant afternoon with him at his Scottish space in Strathmiglo in Fife, and asked him to tell us a bit about his geopathic stress consultancy. Well, today my guest is once again Dr. Patrick McManaway, who we last met in podcast number two, which was some time ago now. Good to have you back, Patrick. Hello, Graham. Thanks for having me today. Um, we didn't really get into stuff in much depth the last time. Uh, I wanted to ask you more about your, your work as a house healer. Uh, what sort of things do you come up against? You know, What sort of symptoms are uh, people experiencing when they call you in? And how do you sort of uh, approach a case? All right. Well, I'd say, um, overall, the reason that I got interested in geopathic stress, personally just fascination about relating to the Earth as a living body, and also the notion of um, Earth meridians, currents of chi running through the Earth, and particularly coming from a a healing and uh, healthcare background, interested in the adverse effects when a site is in trouble in some fashion, and how that can show up as problems for people and plants and animals uh, living in the site. And what I quickly realized was that it's one of the highest leverage forms of healing that one can engage in, and indeed a number of holistic practitioners find that when their clients fail to uh, progress in a healing process, very often what's at issue is something in the environment that's creating an underlying stress that continues either to show up and create new symptoms or new diseases, or to slow down or even uh, work directly against what a homeopath or kinesiologist or or other healing practitioner might be trying to work with. So I think it's a very fundamental part of um, taking a holistic view of both healing and uh, health maintenance. The World Health Organization claims that 30% of buildings, particularly new office buildings, are so-called sick buildings, 
and their criterion for assessing a sick building is that 20% or more of the inhabitants are experiencing health or comfort problems directly related to the environment. So it's a very widespread phenomenon. Obviously, if only 20% of the inhabitants are experiencing the problem, then there's also some kind of constitutional vulnerability that's showing up. Um, so perhaps not everybody's equally affected, although that may just come down to some people being uh, more vulnerable due to incorrect uh, diet or uh, some other s background stress that leads them to be more vulnerable to environmental factors. And I think the geopathic stress really should fall into the same category as diet, air quality, sound quality, light quality, and, um, and water quality and take its place as one of the, the five or six or seven big rocks, as it were, uh, underpinning our, our basic experience of uh, vitality and wellness. So do you find that um, geopathic stress is, is a, uh, a kind of last-ditch thing when all the other factors have been eliminated, like the chemical sensitivity and poor light and air? It kind of thing. very often at the moment uh, shows up as a last ditch and um, when people are scraping the barrel to find out what else could possibly be at issue I think in, um, in moving forwards into a, a modern integrated sense of healthcare it should probably be um, within the top three or four things to look at partly because it's so prevalent uh, partly because it's so significant and also partly because in the most um, number of cases it's it's relatively straightforward and easy to treat at fairly low cost particularly compared with uh, supplementation um, which can be very expensive long term or multiple visits to um, to private healthcare practitioners geopathic stress generally can be remediated in one or two or, or three visits and so in in terms of investment of resource into healthcare, I think it's probably one of the most efficient things that we can do to ourselves. What, what do you find are the main causes of uh, the, the main factors involved? I categorise geopathic stress basically into two boxes. One where the earth energies are in fact perfectly healthy and running free and clear, but because of their strength and elemental quality, um, the inhabitants are being overwhelmed by them. And I generally categorize earth energies broadly into either yin chi or yang chi. And yin chi would be something that's slower moving, relatively speaking, uh, and more receptive energetically than the human baseline. And then yang chi would be something that's faster moving or relatively stimulating relative to the human baseline. And so there's a pattern of symptoms that would go with an excessively yin-chi environment. The uh, Chinese tradition is to look for three parts yang to two parts yin-chi in an environment for houses of the living, and three parts yin-chi to two parts yang-chi for houses of the dead <coughs> and grave sites. So if the human environment is relatively on the yin side, then we tend to experience a relatively uh, depleted uh, sense of ourselves where we lose core energy to the environment. And classic symptoms would be sleeping long and waking unrefreshed, um, a lowering of the basic metabolic rate. So very often people will feel cold, 
feel a bit sluggish, um, find it hard to concentrate, find a diminution in their stamina. Um, I think it's also often associated with degenerative conditions such as osteoarthritis. It's got a long association with uh, promoting cancerous conditions. And um, people will often feel uh, slow and tired and sleepy in a state. Very often an environment, when you look at it, will be relatively cluttered because people don't really have uh, enough get-up-and-go to, to pick up and tidy around them. So it can often be associated with, with a cluttery, cluttery state that then people feel a bit overwhelmed and uh, inadequate to, to deal with. By comparison, an excessively yang-chi environment will lead to hypermetabolic conditions, overstimulation of thyroid, uh, potentially uh, overstimulation of cardiac rhythm, and I notice very often autoimmune disorders where the immune system is um, exaggeratedly active and, and turns in on itself uh, rather than having a an easy sense of, of balance and peace and maintaining a clear sense of what what is self and, and what is not self. So that would be one broad category of geopathic stress where there's simply too much of one kind of elemental uh, influence being sourced from either one or more excessively powerful lines of chi running through the space or a combination of uh, smaller but, but multiple factors. And then a second category of geopathic stress, is, as I relate to it, would be where the earth chi itself has actually got stressed and is carrying incoherent or adverse energy either from some kind of unresolved stress or trauma on the site or some kind of stress and trauma on the line upstream but remote from the site. Is this, are, you, are we talking current trauma here, or can this be something historical? It can be either or both, and uh, those are important uh, questions to ask, uh, particularly as a practitioner. Something that's happened in the past is relatively more straightforward to deal with. If, for example, there's been um, a landscape trauma, such as mining or quarrying, uh, deep foundation work, or um, uh, changes in the landscape to allow a road or a railway to pass through. The damage typically has been done, assuming that the quarry is now disused or the mine workings are no longer active. And very often there's an elemental trauma uh, that's associated, that stays in the landscape until it's addressed with healing intention. And until that happens, there can be a very sour or stressful chi that runs... Uh, through the site or sources from the site. And that very much overlaps into place memory and residue patterns, but those can get into um, lay-type pathways, underground water pathways, and also sit um, like an extreme muscle tension in the Hartman and Curry and other uh, more passive capillary grids. Um, by contrast, as, as you were suggesting, something that's active and ongoing, such as a a presently active quarry, or perhaps um, a prison or a slaughterhouse, or indeed a, an active psychiatric uh, unit or hospital that's upstream on a line, 
uh, that can be a bit harder to deal with because the stress uh, is being repeated in present time and um, sometimes one can get ethical permission um, to work directly on the source of trauma and um, attempt to adapt the site so that it can heal itself in an ongoing fashion otherwise one's left uh, attempting to in some way filter or clean up the chi uh, as it arrives onto the uh, the client's site. And how do um, uh, psychic disturbances fit into this picture? Sort of, you know, ghosts and uh, spirits, poltergeists? Yes, again the um, the problem may be arising from some kind of trauma directly on the site that one's assessing um, perhaps a ghost that's been resident on the site during their lifetime um, who hasn't let go um, obviously more extreme cases where the site has been a host to uh, either murder or suicide uh, there can be very frozen intense energy associated with the, the spirit uh, present also to consider of course would be elemental spirits uh, that have been traumatized or displaced in some fashion either by construction or by landscaping on the site um, or there may be interdimensional portals that have been opened by some kind of activity on the site either by conscious uh, magical process or through the use of psychedelic drugs in a recreational fashion or sometimes through um, unskilled use of spells or Ouija boards or also I find um, if people have been medicated on opiate medication as is very often the case in terminal illness and particularly if the person concerned has been in a fearful state approaching their death then that can open pathways um, into the site uh, that bring some some very disturbed psychic energy. Um, if the problem is off-site, um, then often the chi paths act as spirit paths, again, either for elemental spirits or human ghosts or um, various other entities that may then be accessing the site uh, along the uh, the pathways, perhaps leading from a graveyard, perhaps leading from an old battlefield site, or um, classically from from a psychiatric hospital where there's a lot of uh, people with with vulnerable and uh, disturbed psychic boundaries who may have spirit attachments that then look for other hosts um, uh, elsewhere in the landscape if they get tired or bored or or restless. So um, any earth energies can uh, be carrying spirit trauma. Classically, um, classically excessively yin sites will tend to be burdened more with, um, with resident spirits um, and more excessively yang chi sites uh, classically would have more issues of what we might consider psychic trespass. Or, or spirits uh, passing through rather than necessarily staying although depending what's going on uh, on the site and um, how vulnerable any individuals are there then of course passing spirits may decide to take up residence and, and stay and that can often happen if a house is vacant uh, for a period La uh, local landscape spirits may come and, um, and take up residence 
or sometimes uh, people can bring spirits home with them either from f from their work um, or randomly that they may pick up uh, through events or circumstances just in in their normal normal daily lives so in, in the case of these um, uh, transient spirits uh, would you expect a great variety of spirits in, in those circumstances just using it as a pathway and passing through yes and um, very often the the nature of spirit traffic will depend on where the line is is passing from and to uh, classically the old active lays of course were connecting um, power centers and sacred sites uh, which would include uh, burial sites and then um, uh, spirits may still be be trafficking uh, backwards and forwards from them. Uh, one of my clients happens to be on a, a site between a cathedral and a smaller uh, remote chapel attached to it, and she was able to set her clock by the passage of a procession of monks backwards and forwards between vespers and matins and, and the various uh, praying times of day, and they pass one way on their way to prayers and pass back through a living room once they'd finished. Um, so depending um, depending on, on what the site's concerned with would, would typically uh, represent who or what was, was using the site as a pathway. Sometimes um, deeper landscape spirits like um, uh, trolls um, maybe using a, a chi path to to move between their uh, their resident site and um, and other sites of interest to them in the landscape, so it, it it can be a purely elemental or nature spirit consciousness that's that's using the pathway, fairy paths and elf paths. Um, so really, really case by case, it can be almost anything. Although very often the the client will will have a a pretty good. Uh, sense themselves of what's passing, or it may be obvious just looking at the local landscape as to what the nature of the um, the traffic is likely to be. Do you find you get a lot of um, cases with newer builds as as the pressure on land uh, increases, especially in, in Britain? You know, housing is becoming a lot denser than it used to be historically. Yes, what I find with new builds is typically nature spirit displacement, and. Some nature spirits, by their by their nature, are relatively mobile anyway. Uh, the spirits associated with vegetational growth uh, that support uh, bringing the etheric pattern, say, in a plant's seed form, into the uh, the biological established manifest pattern of the the growing or mature plant, they'll tend to move quite a bit anyway. Um, so. Uh, fairy and elf and gnome they may have habitat displaced and be sad but simply move away uh, from new construction um, some spirits are more uh, territorial by nature or do not themselves have the capacity to move the spirit just of that rock or just of that spring um, will be more vulnerable uh, to having a house pop down on their on their home and some of the more um, innately territorial spirits like troll um, will will tend to be resistant to relocation 
um, and unless one gives them proper and appropriate attention. And so they uh, they may show up as still being resident in the home, uh, either in some part of the house. Very often they'll seek um, a basement area or a less trafficked area uh, and stay in residence there, leaving rather a, a cold and... Um, and uh, hostile uh, sense uh, to the place in that area. A number of times I've seen with greenfield sites that are being uh, developed, the very last house to be constructed um, will end up having a lot of uh, nature spirit activity, uh, including the more mobile um, sprite and elf and fairy type that have moved consistently with new house construction but if there's no green corridor um, allowing them to actually leave the development area into new habitat altogether, then even those mobile spirits may ultimately get trapped um, into a, a human domestic situation. And typically that'll be in the last uh, plot to be, to be developed where they've been congregating uh, as the uh, territory has diminished for them. Do we see any uh, of this sort of trauma in um, animals, uh, either domestic or uh, wild animals around the, the situations? I see a lot of animal um, effects, <coughs> and um, mostly those tend to show up with domesticated animals, which of course um, are, are inevitably within the site, uh, either uh, companion animals living at home or cows or horses uh, that are contained and particularly if they're not able to move uh, from a geopathic stress either because the whole house is uh, is that way or it's just where the kennel is or it's affecting a particular stable or a cow barn then um, problems will often show up and what I've noticed is um, Generally speaking, one can get ill health in animals, uh, loss of condition, uh, loss of health in um, visible in their eyes, visible in their coat. Uh, they may look thin and, and, and scrawny and be pr prone either to repeated or, or some kind of chronic disease. Certain forms of geopathic stress, I think particularly that associated with underground water, seems to create problems through the pineal gland which is magnetically sensitive and is responsible for biological rhythms and timing and so very often problems show up with fertility either with getting pregnant or with carrying a healthy pregnancy to full term um, I had a very interesting case uh, early in my practice with friends who were breeding angora rabbits and they created five identical hutches in a garden shed, one of which had a water vein running under it. And they found that every single litter of rabbits um, that, was, um, that was bred in this one hutch either would be born dead or would, would die within two or three days of being born. And they'd had uh, several post-mortems carried out by their local vet who was unable to identify what the problem was they'd shifted the breeding does around to make sure that it wasn't just one uh, genetic line that was uh, that was creating problems. And they could find no other uh, possible explanation other than, than geopathic stress to account for these deaths. 
Um, in that case, I rectified the situation with a, a classic um, iron stake in the ground upstream of the hutch uh, inserted into the ground directly over the centre of the water vein, which was a small one. And interestingly, the litter that was being carried by the doe that was in the hutch at the time that I, I did the pinning work also lost her litter, which would suggest to me that the, the damage was being done early in the pregnancy, classically the, f the first trimester or the first third of the pregnancy is the most vulnerable to disturbance of an environmental nature. But uh, following the loss of, of those uh, baby rabbits, they never, they never lost another rabbit. So that seemed to be uh, very straightforward. And by coincidence, um, they noticed um, that uh, their dog, which had had a chronic abscess uh, in the house, uh, healed up very quickly after that and also a ficus plant recovered and is, uh, is now doing very fine and, and well. So um, that was a, an early indicator for me of the significance of geopathic stress to animals. Subsequently I've seen quite a number of horse stables where one or more stalls is underrun by a geopathic stress. And typically there the horses again will lose condition, be prone to lameness or colic, uh, or other disorders. They'll also often be very restless and show uncharacteristic aggressive behavior both to other animals uh, in the stable or the herd and also to the, uh, the people that are handling them. And again, uh, often very quick and successful results with classic earth acupuncture or, or other geopathic stress remediation results. With cows, I've noticed um, again, um, a tendency towards infertility or stillbirths or uh, fetal abnormalities um, if they're kept in a cow barn that's geopathically stressed. And I've also on three occasions seen increase in milk yield in dairy herds uh, that were being influenced by, by geopathic stress, indicating again that the, the basic uh, physiological health of the cows was being adversely influenced and uh, the recovery was, was very quick and, and advantageous uh, when, that was, when that was removed and, and the energetic balance returned to one that was more, more suitable for the cows themselves. So I'm very persuaded of the effects on, on domesticated animals. With wild animals, I've noticed that um, uh, typically wild animals will avoid spending time within geopathic stress uh, one very dramatic case that I saw in the forest of Dean um, uh, involved a, a lay-type line running between a church and um, a magical rock uh, on the boundary between the Welsh and English border. And this line was very sour, uh, the house was very haunted, uh, there was a great deal of, of adverse place memory. And despite being in a forested area and the garden having uh, quite a number of fruit trees um, uh, in the orchard, um, in 16 years of occupation the client had never once seen a bird in the garden and if she didn't harvest the fruit itself it would simply fall from the trees and rot on the ground, not being uh, either eaten by birds on the trees or by other animals once the fruit had fallen. 
And in that case, once we got the house clear, uh, on the third day after my work, she saw a robin in the garden for the first time. And within two months uh, after the work, when I checked back in with her, she let me know that any time she went out of her back door, uh, flocks of finches and starlings would, would lift up out of the trees and the hedge. And so that had been fully restored uh, in a way that wild animals were relating to it as, as a normal landscape again. So I think animal sensitivity is, is quite strong to geopathic stress. As we know, different animals have different sensitivities. It would seem, broadly speaking, that domesticated animals uh, prefer an energetic balance pretty much similar to that which humans enjoy, which I think is, is an interesting correspondence. Whereas um, cats and insects uh, will prefer a relatively yinchy environment, and classically bees, we know, will uh, thrive and produce more pounds of honey per hive and have less inclination um, to, uh, to moving uh, away from the hive if the hive is uh, placed over one or more underground water veins. So I think um, just in the same way that plants may prefer relatively acid or, or alkaline soil or different degrees of, of sunlight and moisture exposure, there's a range of um, there's a range of yin to yang chi balance that seems to be optimum uh, species by species. And if you can um, get the chi both clean and free and healthy in its natural state, but also find uh, points of optimum energetic balance yin to yang species by species, then you'll tend to get more, more peaceful and, and stable and, and basically healthy uh, animal populations, both both domesticated and wild. Well, I know that um, <coughs> symptoms also manifest in plant life. Um, I recently had a client, uh, which is the first time I've seen this, where I had mapped out the property and found the water line coming in uh, at the edge of the property. And when I got to the site, there was a hole in the hedge that she was trying to grow there, where she'd had three um, trees planted and they died. That's exactly where the line came through. That's the first time I've seen that so dramatically. Uh, you've been doing some work on um, agricultural work, agricultural places. Yes, you? still very early and mm -hmm. hoping to do more. Um, but I think that um, uh, certainly some some plant species, and we know, for example, beech and fruiting trees are very sensitive to underground water type geopathic stress, um, and. Uh, I've seen a number of fruit trees recover and start to both uh, bear blossom and fruit, having not previously done so, when geopathic stress is remedied. Um, there's quite a lot of, of good research, I think, dating back to Hadlock Fiddler and beyond, particularly looking at the germinating stage of, of seeds. That seems to be a particularly vulnerable period. And Hadlock Fiddler found up to a 30% uh, difference in the dry weight of seeds that had been germinated for only 10 days when they were either on or off of, of lines of particular sensitivity. Um, I think there's a huge amount of research still needed to be done and of course with plant studies um, there's a whole mix of, of things including the mineralization of soil and um, acid and alkaline balance. Um, 
but looking at a garden in, in, in the way that you described, there's often areas where uh, people will repeatedly have, have tried to plant uh, either unsuccessfully or be multiply repeating uh, plantings with uh, varying degrees of frustration and expense. So I think plant and animal studies are, are uh, very strong indicators for geopathic stress because, of course, that also lifts the study out of out of the area of uh, so-called placebo effect, um, which sometimes um, uh, sceptical inquirers was, would consider uh, the, the uh, benefit that we bring to human populations to be uh, more based on, on a belief or a psychology approach. Um, but I think looking at plant and animal studies, we can assume that we're looking at a direct physiological response. And uh, how do you approach a case if it's a, a densely packed urban area with like a, an office block, say, where there's no uh, you know, natural uh, greenness around? Do you find it quite difficult in, in that sort of environment? Yes, I think one's hands are often tied by ethical considerations in terms of um, what you can do, um, either because of uh, gaining access um, to the uh, to the ultimate source of the geopathic stress, um, or because of ethical considerations of how your work may affect uh, houses along the same line, or uh, or flats above or below the client's site, and um, um, I think the the ethical considerations probably would would be interesting to explore maybe in another podcast. Um, but at worst, I think you can work uh, with um, with uh, really clearly defined psychic boundaries um, placed in such a fashion that any adverse effects um, stop at the uh, at the edge of the client's property, um, whether it's whether it's something that you can stop at, at ground level, or if you're working on on an upper floor then uh, creating a three-dimensional psychic boundary, almost like a bubble, um, so that um, adverse, adverse effects move around that, uh, like water off a duck's back. Um, but I think the ethical considerations are, um, they're of great interest, and um, sometimes they're black and white, and sometimes, of course, they're a little more grey. Um, but certainly it's it's much easier to work on, on a freestanding property that has uh, green space around it where you can um, easily and directly work with the earth energies as they, as they flow through and along the ground. Great. Well, <coughs> I think we've probably gone on long enough for one podcast. So All right. We could easily do two or three more, I'm sure. But, uh, well, we'll look forward to the yeah. next opportunity to sit and talk, Graham. Indeed. Great talking to you again, Patrick. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. much. Well, that'll about do us for today, I think. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, near Malvern in England. The Society is open to anybody with an interest in dowsing. You don't need to be able to douse to become a member. So uh, why not have a look at our website at britishdowsers.org to see about membership details and find out what we offer. And of course you can always come along to uh, our events without being a member, although you will pay a small surcharge for many of those. 
Uh, to contact us, you can uh, email the show on podcast at britishdowsers.org or you can also register and leave messages on our dowsing forum at britishdowsers.org slash forum. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you think of the show and uh, what you'd like to hear in future episodes. Thanks to Hilary Brooke for the music and Ian Pegler for the new sing. I'm Graham Gardner. Join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. Thank you.